I guess that's my cue. <laughs> Good to be in the Lord's house today. Please, if you will, turn in your Bibles with me. It's going to be a little bit of a different sermon, as you know. Normally, we work through books of the Bible or even passages like the last four weeks in 1 Corinthians 15, but today is somewhat of a one-off sermon, so I'm going to be reading from two different passages, looking at both of them. One, Matthew chapter 28, and the other is Acts 17. Matthew chapter 28 and Acts 17. Now, I learned something in seminary where you turn to one passage, and if you have two passages you need to manage, you can turn to one passage, then turn to the other and stick your finger in it like that. Y'all see how that works? That'll allow you to get there quickly. Learned that in seminary and paid a good bit of money for it. <laughs> so just wanted to pass that on in an act of discipleship as we seek to teach you to observe all things. I don't want to pull a sermon from one off. Our, my hesitancy is just to throw something out there. So Matthew 28 hopefully is familiar to each and every one of you. Matthew 28, especially verses 18 through 20, this is the Great Commission. Jesus' final words to his disciples. And so I don't want to pull that out in such a way uh, not to acknowledge where it comes. So Jesus has already risen from the dead. He's given his word to his disciples, and his disciples are to take this word and pass it on to the church. This becomes the marching orders, if you will, for what his disciples are to be doing, and by way through his disciples, those who believe according to his name through their word. So this message is given to the church. And Matthew records it in this way. Jesus came to them and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. And then turning over to Acts chapter 17, looking at verses 1 through 7. We see Paul and those with him taking the Great Commission seriously and putting it into action. And it reads this way. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as is a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authority, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, that there is another king, Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you have not left us guessing what it is you would have us to do. 
But you have told us that we are to go and make disciples, teaching them, baptizing them, and teaching them. So, Father, as a church, may this be our task. May we understand it is your word that guides us in everything. It is your word that gives us our standard. It is your word that gives us our mission. It is your word that gives us our authority. For all authority has been granted to Jesus. And we come, Father, as a church only in his name. And so, God, we thank you. We thank you for this opportunity to gather around your word and help us now just to be molded and shaped and encouraged by it. Of course, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is a big day in the life of our church. I want to invite each and every one of you, if you're a guest with us, having been attended for some time, as Kevin said, or, or just maybe this is your first time, immediately after the service we'll have lunch over in our fellowship hall, ready for you to hear about our church, what's going on, meet our staff, meet all of those that are involved. It is a good, good time. At the end of our service today, we'll have our regularly scheduled church conference and so we'll have that where we'll be able to accept new members into our midst. Praise God for what he's doing in the life of our church. And we'll be able to consider a recommendation from our personnel committee for Chris DeWeese as executive pastor. All of this is good and important stuff. Not to mention the fact that we have dubbed this, as you saw, Vision Sunday. I've been a pastor for, uh, here at Taylor's for just a short time. 15 months, I believe, 14 and a half. I could give you the exact day and hour, but I'm not keeping up with it. Over the last few months, really, as we've been praying through and considering what it is the Lord would have us to do, the staff, myself, all others talking, praying, dreaming about our future, that becomes the question for us. What is it that the Lord would have us to do to be here at Taylor's? What has he called for us? What has he laid out before us? And as I stand here, just as I told our first service, I'm both thrilled for what God has given us and the task he's laid before us and nervous at the same time for it is big. But of course, as we recognize, we have a big God. And so for us to start or to try anything small would be foolish. Let's do something that is in fitting with the God that we serve, the God of the universe, the king of the world. So during this last time, I have been considering this, praying. The staff and I have been talking, working through all of this. And today, as we lay here or come here today, we want to consider what it is the Lord would have us to do. During this time, also, I've been reading through the history of our church. Miss Jean Flynn, some of you may have known her, uh, did us a great service in, in recording that history. I love reading the history because what you see when you read our history is you see that there's these important points in history and time when the church had to make a big decision that was going to cost them something, but at the same time, growth was going to come from it. Sacrifice was going to be made, but growth would come. This church was founded in 1864, uh, a, a long way down the road, about a mile at Chick Springs, down at the bottom of the hills, the old hotel there that was a vacation spot outside of Louisville at the time. But in the 1870s, the train from Charlotte to Greenville was established, and it came right through here. In fact, you may hear it this morning. It's still rolling. And that time they had to make a decision, though Chick Springs was down there, they decided to put the train station up here on top of the hill. And when the train station was put here, everything kind of started growing here. The school, the other, other stores and other things started being placed at this point. So the church in the 1870s had to make a decision. We're going to move from Chick Springs up here to the top of the hill. Now I'm assuming none of y'all were here at that time. That's the assumption I'm making. So I'm giving you information. 
They decided to move from Chick Springs up here to the top of the hill. That was a big decision. And in reality, it split the church. That's a long way. It's a mile. It took them a week to get their stuff up here, you know. But from that moment, the church began to grow, placing it in a strategic spot, at a strategic place, at a strategic time for the Lord to use it to grow and reach others. Then you see in 1921, the church had to, had to build a building because they'd grown so much, but they had no money to do it. The building still stands, our chapel. They borrowed, they, be- they, they worked, they, they took pews from other churches, the pulpit from other churches. They just, it was so difficult and the sacrifice had to be made to do this that the pastor went from full-time to part-time. That is not in the plans today. But when they did it, within four years, the church doubled in size again. Big sacrifices made, doing big things, and things happened. Again, some of y'all may have been here in 69 when the church built the next sanctuary, had to go to two services, doubling in size again. Many of you, I'm sure, were here when the sacrifices were made to build this building in 1995. I'm not just talking about big decisions in building buildings. What I'm talking about is times in the life of our church when we had to do something to continue to grow. And those that doing that thing meant making big sacrifices, changing some things to reach more people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe as we consider our time even now, throughout our history, when the church does big things, and the people trust God in big ways. And now I believe we've come to another place in our church's life to do such things. You may think things have changed around here. You may think it's different now. We may need to do different things than we did before. We're in the heart of the Bible Belt, for example. Our association of churches, the Three Rivers Baptist Association, there's some 85, 86, 87 churches. 113 in the Greenville Association. So you think we got churches on every corner, but do you know that in the three zip codes, this one and the two surrounding this one, there's 135,000 people, 637, 135,637. They're all on the road at the same time. Y'all know this. But did you know that one out of every five are professing believers. Four out of every five people around us are not connected to a church or not attending a church. 80% of those around us do not go to church or attend a church. If all of our churches were full on a Sunday morning, if all of our churches were full, shoulder to shoulder, and we pray for this, shoulder to shoulder in every pew from corner to corner, we would not be able to house one-tenth of the population of our county. So we can pray for revival. We pray that God would move, but we don't have enough space for those people. And so do we believe he will? Can we believe that he will do it? Coming off of the last few years, we have seen the desperate need for hope. So much uncertainty through the midst of a pandemic. So many people searching for something. They're looking for something to grab hold of that they know won't change, that they know won't be different. And we know that that message is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe through that, in looking at the history of our church, the time is now. The time seems to be now. But instead, we have more churches without pastors in our area than ever before. More churches without pastors in our state than ever before. Some have referred to this last year as the great resignation, as more pastors have resigned and given up their pulpits than we can possibly know or count right now. The need is so great 
But yet, in spite of that need, we seem to be losing ground to lostness and the devil, right? We seem to be going backwards in these things. Meanwhile, as Paul Chitwood, the uh, president of the IMB, tells us, 154,937 die every single day without hope in Christ Jesus. God, in his great mercy to us, has strategically placed us in a position at Taylor's, I believe, to make a difference in this. I believe he has put us in a place, in a location, and at a time, and in a period, even right now. And if our brothers going back to 1864 could see this moment and see this place, they would have never dreamed what God has done or what God is going to do. And so as we look at this time, what I think is that we will not be playing defense anymore. We have the gospel of Christ Jesus, and there's no reason for us to be backing up or playing defense. We must be on the offensive with the gospel. And our desire is nothing more and nothing less than to simply change the world for Jesus Christ. To simply change the world for him. As we consider that idea, change the world for Jesus. I've got four simple points. I did really good today, y'all. I got four points. Uh, All of them include a P. And I got one little section with three that they all start with an R. So I'm so thankful for my alliteration um, that I have come up with. And hopefully it'll help us to see what we mean when we talk about changing the world for Jesus. First, to change the world for Jesus gives us our clear purpose. To change the world for Jesus gives us our clear purpose. If we look back to Matthew 28, what happens here is as Jesus comes to his disciples, he's telling them, this is exactly what you are to do. Jesus did not leave them guessing or wondering what they were about. He did not leave them questioning what it was to do. He said, you are to go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. He gives us the clear purpose for the church. We need not look any further for us at Taylor's First than the word of God to find out what our purpose is. And our purpose is to change the world for Jesus. To make disciples who make disciples, as he said. Now, I had a crisis point early uh, at one church, really early in my ministry, about midways. Somebody, there's always this distinction in preaching. You know, do you preach evangelistically or do you preach in discipleship? You know, do you do these two? Do you preach trying to get people saved or do you preach trying to build up the saints? And so there's always, there's this seeming idea that those are separate styles of preaching. And so one Sunday, I remember preaching, preaching my guts out up there, talking about Jesus and what he's done. And I had this sweet little lady said, she needed to talk to me. She said, pastor, I need to talk to you. Now, before y'all judge her, some of y'all have said the same thing before. And she said, pastor, I need to speak to you. And I, I, I went outside and she broke my heart that day. She said, pastor, I don't think you preach Jesus enough. And I said, oh my goodness. There's nothing worse you can tell me. I'm trying to give Jesus with everything. You know, I like to see a sermon. People ask me, what's my philosophy of a sermon? It's like a big Jesus sandwich. You know what I'm saying? Jesus in the top, Jesus in the front, and Jesus all through the middle. That's what I think of it. And she tells me I didn't preach Jesus enough. I was heartbroken. I was ready to quit. I went home and told Allison, I'm done. I can't, I, 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 I don't know what to do next. This is my whole goal. And Jesus is all I know to proclaim. And this lady says, I'm not preaching him enough. The next day I went to church, disappointed, discouraged. There at my door, going into the back door in my office was an envelope. It wasn't signed, it was anonymous. Now I want to go ahead and let y'all know, normally anonymous letters get the simple little, little move, you know what I'm saying? Boom, to the trash can, right? But not this day. 
I decided to read it. I read this letter. I read it all the way through. At the end of the letter, she said, Pastor, what I'm saying to you is that you preach Jesus too much. In a moment of clarity, in a moment of God, Holy Spirit understanding, the Lord simply said to me, you're right where you need to be, Josh. Because what we preach here is not either or. What we preach here is not one side or the other. What we preach is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Jesus Christ and him crucified is good enough to save the sinner. And it's also strong enough to equip the believer for the next step in their life. Jesus Christ and his crucified is enough. Amen. We preach a message. And what we think when we say we want to change the world for Jesus, we see what our message is. Our message is Jesus, nothing else and nothing less. That's all we have to offer. That's all we have to give. That's our message. And we preach that message with a hope because we know Jesus can change hearts and he can change lives and he can change people and he can change this world. In fact, in Revelation, it tells us quite clearly that he is making all things new again. And that newness, that making things new begins in my heart and your heart in our heart in our communities from us Jesus can change the world he is exactly the hope that we need but we also understand what the scope of our message is our message is Jesus our proclamation is the hope of change for the world but it is the world that's important we preach Jesus in our community. We preach Jesus in our state, in our nation. We preach Jesus to the ends of the earth. Our desire is to not limit ourselves by location or place, but anywhere, anytime, any place, we proclaim Jesus Christ. This is our purpose. We partner with whoever we can partner with to proclaim Jesus Christ in the deepest, darkest places we can. We do whatever we do to proclaim Jesus Christ in our community, in our neighborhood. This is why we exist. I'm thinking of the parable of the, the sower, right? And you got the parable of the sower. He's spreading the seeds. He's throwing the seeds everywhere. And if you remember, many people turned to what kind of soil received those seeds, talking about you. So you had them going up on the path. You got some amongst the rocks. You got some in the thorns. But some of it fell on the good soil and grew. Y'all remember that parable? Hopefully y'all got that one. Some of it fell there. When I'm considering that parable, oftentimes I consider those soils. And which soil are you? You need to recognize that. But I also think about that farmer, that sower, if you will. And he's a lot like me. He's not very good at it. Because he's sowing these seeds and the joker is chunking them everywhere. Y'all know what I'm saying? They're up in the rocks. They're over on the path. They're in the good soil. Some of them are in the thorns. He's throwing this stuff everywhere. But I think there's a point there. We believe here at Taylor's First that the Bible is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. It is our standard and authority for all things. We build our church and our life upon God's word. We believe he sets the standard not only for our church, but for all of society and culture and place. That his word gives all the rules. We would be considered at that point because we preach and proclaim the blood of Jesus Christ covering everything, right? We consider it at that point as conservative. But let me tell you something we're going to be liberal at. We're going to be liberal at how we spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anybody, everywhere, we don't discriminate. We don't hold back. We throw it in the rocks. We throw it in the weeds. We throw it in the thorns. We throw it on the good soil. We throw it everywhere and let God do the work of taking his gospel and implanting it in the heart of people and changing them. That's what we do. That is our purpose. That is our purpose. To change the world for Jesus is our God-given privilege. 
It's not only our purpose, it is our privilege. What happens whenever a church takes the Great Commission seriously? It's a question we have to answer. What does it look like to take what Jesus tells us seriously? Because in the Great Commission, he didn't say come and see. He said go and tell. Do you all understand what I mean? In the Great Commission, he commands us to go and to proclaim his name. What does it look like when we take that seriously? Well, the church of Antioch took it seriously. And they gathered together some men, some faithful men, and they prayed over them, and they sent them out to go and proclaim the name of Jesus. And what we see here in Acts is the story of how they went out going and proclaiming that name. And in Acts 17, I think what we see, and I could have turned to any little place in Acts, I'm sure, but in Acts 17, we see what it looks like when the Great Commission is taken seriously. I love Acts 17. It's right after the Macedonian call. Paul is trying to figure out where to go next, and the Lord used someone to call him across over to Macedonia. He went over there and met first with, with the Philippians. Remember, he got thrown in jail for preaching the gospel, earthquake, doors wide open, but the jailer got saved. Others got saved. He left the church there. He had to leave, and after he left, he sauntered his way on over to Thessalonica, which is where we pick him up in Acts 17. In Acts 17, it tells us that that Paul went into town with a plan, with a clear strategy. He went to the synagogue and he began to preach. This has been his strategy and plan before. He began to preach, but what was his message? This Jesus whom I proclaim is the Christ. His message was Jesus, knowing that Jesus changes hearts and lives. It's the hope of the gospel. And he went in and he began to proclaim this. And what do we see happen? Look at verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. When the gospel is proclaimed, people believe. It's a strange thing, isn't it? But it's God's work. When the gospel is proclaimed, people believe. Look around you. For many of you heard the gospel, and what happened? You believed. You believe the gospel. So we should expect when we proclaim the gospel, people would believe. But what also should we expect? We should expect verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. When the gospel is proclaimed, not only should we expect some to believe, but we also should know that some will revile us. Some will despise it. You may think that's not the case here. It's pretty easy, but let me give you some numbers. The same demographic numbers that we got. Travis Kearns helped me with this from our Three Rivers Association. Doing that same demographic study of 135,000 people in our area. 63% believe abortion should remain legal. 15% 15 don't care. Or consider this number. In our area, just the three zip codes around us, 50% of the people believe churches should be forced to accept the LGBT community against their beliefs. And if not, have to face consequences. And 30% don't care. You're talking about 80% of the people What I'm telling you is that we as believers in this culture and climate and place, even in the heart of the Bible Belt, are still weird to everybody else. And like I said, and my buddy says before, we're going to continue to be weird. 
Because what we believe goes dead against what the world accepts as good and right and faithful. What we believe goes dead, dead against what the world thinks is, 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 is right and true. What we believe in God's word goes dead against what the world's standards are. In fact, you think we're weird now. We believe our Savior is going to come back on a white horse and split the clouds wide open. That's going to really get weird for you, isn't it? We may think we're in a different place, but when we stand up for the truth, we will see people come to know Jesus Christ and we'll see people hate us even. When we take the Great Commission seriously, we'll see both. But what we know is, what we know is, is that the world, more than anything else, in the face of all that it sees, the world needs Jesus and the message of the gospel. And if we're going to change the world for Jesus, we can't be passive about that message. We must be vocal about that message. And God, let me tell you a secret. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need Josh Powell and he doesn't need Taylor's First Baptist. God is a God who can do what he wishes when he wishes when how he wishes. But in his great taxonomy of things, God has chosen to use me and to use you to proclaim his glory into a dark and dying world, to be his light in the midst of that darkness and to bring hope to people who are desperate for it. He has given us this privilege of being a part of his mission. It's not just a duty or responsibility. It is our joy. So we won't back down. We don't change who we are. We don't change the message. If we're going to change the world for Jesus, then Jesus has to be at the heart of it. If we're going to bring hope, then we have to bring Jesus along with it. We don't change who we are. We don't change the message. We consider it a privilege to face even difficulty for the name of our Savior. Our purpose is clear. Our privilege is understood. And look at what they say here. They bring these men before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. My goodness, if the Lord would allow us to be brought before the authorities of this world and place and community and bring charges against us, I pray these are the charges. These are the ones who've turned the world upside down. These are the ones who've turned the world upside down. And how have they turned it? They're all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. That's our message. And by saying that and proclaiming that, it turns the world upside down for Jesus' name. May that be charged to us as well. Third, to change the world for Jesus means we must have a determined, clear plan. There are many different plans to multiply and express we have to pray for us at Taylor's uh, through much prayer, reading God's word on what it is God would have us to do. Paul had a plan. When Paul went into every city, it tells us he would go into the synagogues and begin to preach. He would begin to share in those synagogues. He began to tell, he began to, to, to preach and try to tell them that Jesus is the Christ. He's the one, dead, resurrected. This is Jesus. That was a part of Paul's plan. We see in Paul's plan, not only he began to preach, he would find some believers there. They would believe and profess faith. Then he would invest in those believers so they can establish the church in that place. In many ways, our vision for Taylor's First fits right in line with Paul's. Anytime he entered into a new city, he would want people to encounter God, right? The proclamation of the gospel, the worship of the one true and living king. Paul wanted them to encounter and know God, the one true and living God. 
And as they knew and encountered the one true and living God, then he would begin to invest in them, equipping those believers to live in light of the resurrected king, encounter God, equipping believers, teaching them, as the Great Commission says, to observe all things, leaving even some in that place to do it as he stepped away. But not only that, he would help them to engage the world, encounter God, equip believers, and engage the world, demonstrating the call of God to be goers, to be those who go out and tell the gospel, engaging the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. All of those things you'll see we believe as part of who we are in vision. But I believe after we've been praying through these things, we need to add one more piece for our plans here at Taylor's. And I believe that, that in adding this piece, we stay in line with the Apostle Paul. We stay in line with what he does and how he handled things. He brought people to Jesus, encountered God. He equipped them, equipping believers. He helped them to engage the world there, the community around them. But then he also established the church. So if we would consider our vision, it would be to encounter God, equip believers, engage the world, and establish the church. The issue for ourselves is how are we going to go on the offensive in reproducing ourselves, multiplying ourselves, reaching more people with the gospel. The only way to do that is to send out more, to start more churches. Ultimately, we won't put Taylor's First Baptist on the, on the name of many other satellite campuses. We'll put the church name in the community to live and to work there amongst them so they can reach them. Now you say, Josh, we don't need more churches. Did you hear what I said earlier? If everybody in our community, our community, the, maybe the most churched area in the world, if everybody in our community wanted to go to church today, we don't have enough room for them. One out of every 10 is all we can fit. We want to plant more churches. You say, how many? As many as possible. You say where? In our county, in our state, in our nation, in the nations, wherever God calls us and leads us to plant them. That's what we want to do. This becomes part of our vision to establish churches, to build and plant more churches. Now we can say that, but we have to do something to prepare us to get to that point, right? It's not just something we can go, we want to plant more churches and then turn around and go back to business as usual. Something has to change in order to bring that about. So simply three things that we want to be starting and establishing here. First is a residency. We need to train up and prepare more pastors, teachers, and leaders. As I said, there's more churches without pastors now than ever. We need to be training up pastors, teachers, and leaders here in our place. And we've been contacted by our partners and others saying, this is what we want. We need a church that we can send someone to to train and learn about the gospel ministry. They can be trained in the gospel ministry and then sent out. We want to develop this residency here, not in a replacement for our seminary, but working alongside our seminaries and colleges to train up ministers for one or two years so that we can send them out to other churches. You can't start churches without leaders and pastors, and we want to be a place that trains up pastors and sends them out, training them up, residents and training so we can send them everywhere, not working simply on our staff, but working with our staff to learn and to grow and to do ministry and be sent out. We have that residency. We also have replication. I call it replication because we have to continue to do all that we're doing on Sunday morning, but we have to be ready to reproduce what we are doing. We have to be able to reproduce the things we are doing here on Sunday morning. And hear me when I say this. I want everybody, I said this in the first service, I say it now. I love our traditional service. I love it. 
I love preaching there. They give me a lot more amens than y'all. I'm just saying. I love our traditional service. I love Taylor's worship. I'm, I, I, I was here sitting there standing just thanking God to hearing so many of you reading Revelation today, reading those words of Scripture out together. I love everything that Pastor Kevin and Scott are doing in Taylor's worship and traditional. I love it all. And isn't it great, by the way? We often look at that as saying, oh, they got two different styles. But isn't it great that we serve a God that we can worship in different styles and different ways but still proclaim his glorious name? But our desire, and hear me when I say this, our desire is not to satisfy every preference of every person in every pew. If we moment, if for the moment we begin to do that, we are dead in the water, just chasing our tail, hoping to satisfy every simple preference. Our desire, first and foremost, is to glorify God with the gifts that he has given us for the advancement of his gospel in this place. So in order to do that, we need to be doing what we can reproduce. So we won't be taking away from anything, especially on a Sunday morning, but we'll be adding to it. We'll be adding something to what we're already doing. No subtraction, just addition. God has blessed us to all of our service are growing and people are adding and coming in. And so God is, in our desire, he's blessed us to add more, to do more. So we'll be adding a band-led service on Sunday morning. Three services, you heard me right. Somebody said, three services? My goodness, how many you want to do? As many as we need. I hope we do five one day. More people, the better. To hear the gospel and proclaim it, right? In those three services, a band-led service that we will be leading. The reason why is our traditional and Taylor's worship are not easily reproducible. Oftentimes, church plants are meeting in schools or borrowed locations, and it's really hard to move that organ in and out every week for the traditional service. Taylor's worship, it's not easy to take a 75 to 80 member choir in this group that they do so well and move them around to, a, to another service. Those are not easily reproducible. They are glorious. And I love that we have them. But they're not easily reproducible for us. By adding a band-led service on Sunday morning, we'll be able to do a place, have a place that we can train up, lead, worship together, and send people out, learning what it would be like to go into places that are sometimes hard and difficult to set up, places that are easy to move and everything else. This will become a training ground for us to send others out to do the work. A place where we can grow and learn and serve. Send. Plus, it gives us more space to grow here on our campus by God's grace. Band-led, traditional, Taylor's worship. Do all three. By the way, as a pastor, I'm committed. I think what's most important in this, or what's most important for me in this, is I'm committed to preaching in each one of those. That means we'll work out our times. It's going to be a puzzle to put together. But please, if the only thing you have to do is maybe change what time you get to church in order to change the world for Jesus, then hey, you got it made, right? So we thank God. We thank God whatever it takes for us to be able to do these things. You'll hear more about the details of this coming closer to the fall as we seek to launch it out in the fall. You'll hear about this. We're not slapping it on you next week or anything like that. We'll be prepared, we'll be ready, and we'll be doing it well. And you'll hear more about this coming in the fall. But it's coming so that we can train up more people. Third R, renovation. We want to be as healthy as we possibly can. We need to care for our spaces here in the life of our church. If we're seeking to plan out more churches, our mothership, if you will, mother hen, if you will, needs to be prepared, ready, and healthy to send. And so we need to take care of our stuff. 1995, I love preaching in this room. 1995, this room was built. It's been 30 years in 2025. And just as they made that decision in 1995, 
to, to make some sacrifices, to build this space. And from that, the church exploded in growth again. So it's time for us to do some things around here to prepare us for the next 30 years. 30 years for the gospel. All of these things will be coming in order that we can establish more churches, in order that we can change the world for Jesus. Fourth and finally, and I'm closed. To change the world for Jesus will help us, will, will be our greatest pleasure will be our greatest pleasure. The great joy in life for all believers is to do the work of the Lord. Maybe you haven't learned that yet. Maybe you haven't seen it yet. But put your hand to the plow and do what God's called you to do and you will find, though it is hard, though there may be sacrifices, though it may be difficult at times, in every moment, with every pull of every row of everything we do, it is worth it. There's no greater joy there's no greater pleasure, there's no greater satisfaction that you could possibly find as a child of God than serving our King and doing His work. Remember the quote from C.T. Studd. He's got a great last name. I mentioned this to you all before, a poem that he wrote, and he repeats the refrain over and over again. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You may not like everything we do or every little detail of the plan, but our goal is not to please every whim or preference. Our goal is to change the world for Jesus Christ. And all of our energies are there. Everything we do is there. And if every single one of us is worried about our own preferences and, and, and looking to fight over times and spaces and things, then who cares about lost people? If we're worried about those inward things, well, what about those four out of every five in our own community that do not know Jesus? Who's worried about them? Who's considering their life? And I want you to know, and I mean this with all sincerity and truth, lost people don't care about our styles or our times or our strategies. Lost people just want to be loved to Jesus Christ. They just want to know that truth and feel that love. And I'm not really, I'm not really concerned much about the strategies and all these other things. I'm more concerned that we will be a church that welcomes them with loving arms and cares for them into our body. That's what we should be after. That will be our greatest pleasure in life. Seeing the change in hearts and lives for the gospel of Christ Jesus. So as I close... I want you to hear me when I say this. I'm not really asking you to do anything today. That will come. Moments like this, Vision Sundays, I could call on you to come up and everybody that's committed to it, come up and pray and all those kind of things. But sometimes that's more showing than it is real. Here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to be something. I'm asking you to be a church that loves those that are hurting be a church that treasures the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be a church that desires more than everything else than to lay your life down in worship for him. And Sunday morning only becomes an expression of what you do every other day of the week. Be a church that prays to God knowing that the power of God is all that can change hearts and lives and we're desperate for it. Be a church that considers everybody else greater than themselves just as Philippians tells us to do because that's what Jesus did. Be that church. In reality, when we be that, there is no telling what God's going to ask of us. And there's no telling what he's going to accomplish through us. What to do will come easy. 
but let's take care of our hearts and what we are to be. That's first. So today, today, I ask you simply to pray. To seek the Lord and how you can be a part of this. Seek the Lord how you can be an encouragement in these things. Seek the Lord how you can even lay your life down. And maybe it's you, even right now today, God is already starting to stir and say, I want to go out and plant something else somewhere else to reach more people. Maybe that's you he's even calling out and praise God for it. But pray that God will prepare your heart for what he'd have us to do. Pray he would prepare you. If you need to come up front and pray, by all means, do it. If today is a day that you, you, you had once been lost, and in fact, you are a lost person that this church has loved and cared for and welcomed in with open arms, today may be the day you take the next step and say, that's what I want to do. I want to be a part of that. I want to join that. I want to go with that. Maybe you're a visitor or a guest with us today. And you say, I want a place that's going to matter and do something. That's what we want here as well. Come and be a part of it with us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and your truth. It is good. God, I pray that you would help us to be the place that you would want us to be. And that starts with each and every heart in these pews and each and every start in this room. God, help us to be a church that loves you and is devoted to you and is seeking to honor you with every step and every breath. God, I pray this morning if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that they would feel the love of Christ. They would give their heart to you, having heard that gospel. Maybe through a friend or a, a, another saint or believer, someone else at our church. But today may be the day they say, this is, this is what I need to do. Encourage them to come forward, Father. Encourage anyone to come forward that needs to speak. But more than that, God, work in each and every heart that you would mold us and shape us into people we need to be so that we can change the world for Jesus. All of this we pray in Christ's name. Let's stand together.